Hello, friends. Welcome back. My guest today is Rob Henderson, US Air Force veteran and a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. We're talking about signaling, why you do the things you do. Signaling is something that almost everyone is doing all of the time. We're constantly leaking information about ourselves and our motives, but most of that information is involuntary. So today, expect to learn why signaling and status are intrinsically linked, how standing next to a Lexus can increase a man's attractiveness, why putting 20 expensive pens on your desk is a smart idea, why young men play loud music out of their car, and much more. Honestly, I could talk about evolutionary psychology and social psychology for for years. It's so interesting looking at why our motives are the way they are. What are the underlying principles that are guiding our behavior? And then just looking at how ridiculous we are as animals, thinking that we're in control of the stuff that we do and that we understand our own motives. Uh, it's, It's great. This conversation with Rob is absolutely awesome. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, 
they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Rob Henderson. Is everyone signaling all of the time? Well, yes. Uh, Everyone is signaling all of the time, but people don't necessarily know they're signaling, and they're not necessarily consciously signaling all of the time. But however, uh, we are sending information about ourselves at all times, which is sort of the classic academic definition of of signaling. how, How would you define it? Someone's new to the topic. What's signaling? Well, signaling is basically, uh, we're all constantly leaking information about ourselves uh, from the way we talk, the way we dress, uh, the kinds of work that we do, the activities that we choose to engage in. Uh, Signals are information that other people sort of pick up based on what they see and what what kind of information they're inferring from from our behaviors and and so forth. But the interesting thing about that is not all of the signals. In fact, probably most of the signals are unconscious. Right. Yeah. I think that, well, this is basically borne out by the academic research is that this is not something that we are, you know, sort of sitting down and, you know, calculating and deliberating. How am I going to send information about myself? What kind of information do I want to send? And even when we do do those things, uh, we're often not even aware of the information that we we are sending. So, for example, uh, if I want to buy like a fancy car, I'm not thinking to myself like, oh, this is really going to impress my friends and it's going to give me a hot partner and it's going to make me look great to my coworkers or something. Uh, often it's just like this car makes me feel good. And so I want to buy this car. But, you know, as a lot of evolutionary psychology research indicates, we don't do things just because they feel good. That feeling good has to have some kind of social payoff, some kind of evolutionary benefit uh, if you reach back far enough. Why that feel? Why that feeling good is actually something uh, you know that we feel that is so positive. Is there a golden rule of signaling? Is it like just why you do what you do might not really be why you do it? Uh, the golden golden rule of signaling. I mean, well, I mean, the first would be sort of related to your first question, I think, which is that uh, the golden rule is that we're we're always signaling. And that there's no escaping the signaling game. I've noticed sometimes when I talk about signaling with people, they think like, well, I don't do that. Like, that's, that's silly. Like, you know, this just sounds like people trying to impress each other or whatever. I'm not, I'm not into that. But even by saying that, you're communicating something about yourself. So there's no sort of escaping that signaling game. If I tell you, like, I don't care what people think about me. You have learned something about me. I have emitted a signal. And now, you're, oh, you're one of those guys who don't care. Okay, you're that kind of guy. Right. So there's no escaping that. Um, do you do you have a, a sort of rule about uh, signaling? No, not at all, man. Just that increasingly I realize how how tiny the sliver of my motivations are that I get to see and that the vast majority of the stuff that my body and my mind are doing is just completely on autopilot. And I'm just I'm like cargo. I'm just along. I'm just along for the ride. I'm not passenger. I can't even order nuts off the air hostess i definitely can't drive the plane i'm just like i'm the suitcases in the back 
you know, I've heard someone, I can't remember, uh, this was a psychologist who described it as, a, like, you know when you're walking through, like, a video game arcade, and there's, like, the, the racing games, and the car is driving, and you'll see, like, a little kid get into the seat, and he didn't put any coins in. He's just sitting there pretending to drive the car. Uh, the analogy I heard was that, like, that's our life. We are in that driver's seat playing with that steering wheel, thinking we're driving the car, but we are not. Something else is going on, and we're just sort of along for the ride, like you're saying. What are some of the examples of how people might signal or some of the favorite examples that you've seen recently where it would be quite surprising? Uh, well, one that I just read, so this was an old study from like the late 1950s in the U.S. Um, these these like old school behavioral psychologists, um, you know, the organizational psychologists, but anyway, they found that these executives in this office, um, somehow it became a game to see like, you know, who could have a fancy pen on their desk. So at first they found that like, oh, the, you know, each one of these executives has one pen on their desk, this sort of fancy, expensive fountain pen or something. And then the psychologist came back a, a few days later and one of the one of the individuals had put two pens on their desk. And then, uh, you know, by the next day, all of them had two pens. And then they kept doing this. And eventually every every executive had multiple fancy fountain pens on their desk. And you know, I, I would bet that if you sat down with them and asked, like, why do you keep collecting these pens? They're not going to say, like, I'm trying to keep up with the other guys. I want to show that I can afford these pens, too. Um, they just sort of feel this pressure of, like, oh, well, if I only have one and that guy has five, people are going to look at me, and that makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, there are some other interesting examples of this from uh, research in, in mating and evolutionary psychology. Uh, you know, for example, if you show... Um, women images of the same man next to uh, you know, sort of a, a typical sedan, like a four-door kind of a sedan, like a Mazda or something, and ask how attractive he is versus um, the same man next to a luxury automobile, like a Lexus or something, and ask how attractive he is. Uh, it's the same guy, same clothes, same everything, just the car next to them is different. The guy next to the Lexus is rated as much more attractive. And Men on some level are aware of this, and this is why so many guys are obsessed with buying fancy cars, upgrades, uh, taking pictures of them. I have friends who are into this. You know, they take you know, Instagram, you know, look, how, look what I did to my car, look at like how shiny my rims are or whatever. Um, so that is actually a key uh, motivator for signaling is to uh, impress, impress romantic partners as well as you know, other kinds of people. Is that upgrading of the car, is that an Asian thing? Is that because you got lots of Asian friends? Uh, well, I actually don't have that many uh, Asian friends. It's um, not the like too, too Fast, Too Furious down in Cambridge, is it not? It's, uh, it's not like that here. The guy I'm thinking of, he's, he's actually a, an American. He's a white guy in America. He's really into cars. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure. This is probably, at least you know, in, in a, a developed countries, advanced economies, I would be very surprised. Uh, if, uh, for example, men cared less about their cars than women. I bet it's always the young guys who care much more about how their cars look and how fast they are and how, how they look. So what's the signal with that in evolutionary psychology speak? Is it resource acquisition? Is it conspicuous consumption? Yeah, well, okay, so conspicuous consumption, that comes from, from economics, uh, which is, so, I mean, this is actually a really neat example of like, whatever, like parsimony across the sciences so biology and economics, both sort of converged on the same idea of what are called uh, uh, honest signals or, or costly signals. So what a guy is communicating when they can afford that expensive, fancy car, um, 
you know, they're basically saying, you know, I have a, I have a job, I'm resourceful, I am conscientious because I can take care of this. Um, and, you know, often luxury cars do take more sort of maintenance and upkeep and care uh, compared to, you know, sort of a, a more sort of downgraded, less, less luxurious car. Um, so that's, that's definitely one component of this conspicuous consumption, showing your economic uh, uh, position. And the sort of analogous idea in biology, um, sort of costly signaling idea, or the handicap principle, some people call it, um, the sort of what uh, key example of this would be the peacock's tail. Um, I'm sure you know, many of your, many of your uh, listeners have heard about this idea from evolutionary biology. Only a healthy bird can produce such you know, uh, incredible and beautiful plumage. Um, that tail does not help that peacock survive. In fact, it does very much the opposite. It actually puts them at danger. Um, if that peacock displays this tail, um, it alerts predators to its position. Uh, if it tries to fly away, that tail is going to weigh it down. But when that, that peacock shows its tail to the peahens, to the women, or the, you know, the female peacock is trying to attract, it's showing that, like, look, I'm so healthy and so robust and strong that I can afford to lug this thing around, uh, and therefore you should mate with me and, you know, we'll have some, you know, some, some offspring with some, with some quality, quality genes, too. There's another animal that does this, too. Um, I think it's a gazelle, uh, some, some kind of uh, animal similar to that in, in Africa, and they do what's called stotting. Uh, and what, th what this is, is um, if they sense that a predator is nearby, uh, like a lion or something, uh, they'll start jumping. They'll immediately start jumping into the air. These are mostly the male uh, gazelles. They'll start jumping and then, you know, the, the research they call it stotting. And what they're doing, the researchers believe that what they're doing is uh, showing the predators that I am very strong, very muscular. This is how high I can jump into the air. If you try to chase me, you're not going to catch me. So just relax. Go for one of those other guys who, are, who, when they stop, they're not they're not jumping as high as me, right? Um, and often they'll do this as well when there are female uh, gazelles around, and this is sort of to impress them too, to show that like, look how high I'm jumping. There's a predator right there. I'm drawing their attention, and I don't care. This is how how uh, impressive I am. And you know, I'm sure we can think of some similar examples with with guys too. Sometimes I think young guys do this with like. Um, like playing very loud music out of their cars uh, and sort of drawing <laughs> What do you attention. think? What do you think the signal of that is? Rob, pivot your uh, camera a little yeah, bit yeah. so that you're in the middle for me, dude. There you oh, go. Sure, you keep sure. on shifting okay. around. Uh, yeah, what do you think's the signal yeah. of that? Like, listen to my shite music. <laughs> well, I, I think what like it is, especially like late at night when there's a lot of you know drunk people around and so on. Sometimes I think, like, are they just drawing the attention of either unsavory people who would want to, like, tell them to shut up or start a fight with them, or if they're trying to draw the attention of the police? I mean, it's not usually a good idea uh, in those kinds of situations, late at night, a lot of drinking going on, um, and who knows what else, to suddenly start blaring loud music out of your car. And I, and again, I don't think it's just con I don't think the guys in that car are like, let me show off how tough I am. Whatever. I think it's just like you've got some budding you know, evolutionary <laughs> psychologists driving around with neons under their car and a base box in the back. There we go. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is that's totally speculative. I've never seen any research on that, but sometimes I, I think that a lot of the a lot of this stuff. I mean, even when I was a you know, young guy doing dumb things, I don't think that is conscious in any way. A lot of it is extremely risky, but that riskiness is. Uh, 
you know, it, it's attractive. Um, I've seen research along these lines on, on skateboarders. Um, so researchers did uh, visit a skating park and what they found was that, you know, they, they'd sort of interview these uh, young male skateboarders and sort of look at how risky the, the, the tricks or the moves they were doing were in the skating park. And what they found was that when they sent a young male research assistant to interview them, uh, they measured, you know, how risky the activities they were doing compared to when they sent a young female research assistant to interview them. And when it was a young woman, these young male skateboarders were taking much more risks, uh, incurred more injuries, uh, and they were, you know, sort of, you know, in a way you could think of this as dotting or something, right? Like they were trying to show off to to the young female versus versus the guy who maybe they don't care that much about, about impressing. But sometimes guys do care about impressing other guys, and we can talk about that too. Yeah. The fascinating thing, I think, about signaling is running back from what the action is and trying to infer what all of the different branches are. So it's kind of like a reverse tree. Or I guess it's like roots. So it's like you have one thing that happens and then you try and pull back from there. So you've got the, the, the guy that always wants to get in a fight on a night out. Like, what's that guy signaling? That guy's signaling, I have so much excess fitness and I'm so robust that I am able to have what is a really dangerous altercation with someone drunk, with a hard floor, with other people around, maybe taking on multiple men. And um, we spoke about this last time that you were on, where if anyone has ever watched two guys about to fight outside of a nightclub, the first thing that they'll do every single time is circle each other. And that's precisely (laughs) what you see when you watch lions or tigers or um, at stags, you know, that are about to this circle, circle each other, and maybe they'll push, which is gauging mm. each other's strength. And um, so much every time that you send me journal articles or articles to read and stuff like that, I feel less and less removed from the animal kingdom. That's the most gracious way that I can put it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get that too. Um... I've, I've even seen like along these lines about guys circling each other. There's, um, there's an author, Rory Miller, I think is his name. He wrote a book called Meditations on Violence, and he worked in law enforcement for a long time. And he calls this the monkey dance, uh, you know, to go back, you know, are we, are we animals? Are we human? Well, he calls this the monkey dance, uh, which is when two guys, he has like a, like um, whatever, like the sequence that, that he sees that just like you're describing, where at first they'll sort of uh, like, verbally threaten each other what are you looking at man you got a problem that kind of thing and then they'll start to sort of you do the chest bump and then they'll do the shoving match and then at a certain point it often will escalate into you know a sort of roundhouse punch with the dominant hand and then the other guy tackles and you know inevitably this is usually how it goes right and one of the things that he points out is that this almost always happens with well one almost always young men and two it's they do it with each other, right? So young men are not going to engage in the monkey dance with uh, with a female at a nightclub. I, I guess I have seen like world star videos or something. Occasionally some weird stuff happens, but overwhelmingly it's it's two young guys. They usually aren't trying to fight women. They're usually not trying to fight people who are much, much older uh, or much, much younger. They're not trying to do the monkey dance with little kids, right? They're usually same age, roughly the same size. Yeah, I mean, you know, very few are gonna try to do the monkey dance with like one of the massive bouncers or something. Um, 
And I, I find that to be particularly interesting too, that we sort of, at least in that instance, you know, they want to find someone who's roughly on the same position and who it's sort of a question whether they could beat them, right? And that is sort of where you'll get that maximal signaling value. Is that where the friction occurs? The fact that you are within reaching distance of each other in terms of whatever hierarchy you see it to be? Yeah, I think that probably plays some role. There was a sociologist, Roger Gould, he wrote this book, um, Collision of Wills, where he actually, I mean, his whole book is about that specific question about like, when is conflict most likely to arise between individuals? And, you know, he, he reviews a, you know, just a bunch of research cross-culturally within like sociology, anthropology, and so on, where he finds that, uh, like basically equality of status actually increases the likelihood of conflict or the absence of methods to establish uh, social position. Uh, so a simple example he gives is um, sort of the norms around age. You know, typically uh, we try to defer to our elders. Elders usually have higher positions in society, and so we defer to them. But then he says, um, you know, imagine a workplace scenario where the boss is actually the sort of hotshot, this young upstart, and his subordinate or her you know, employee is, is an older guy, uh, an older person. In that case, you can imagine more conflict than if the boss was the older person and the young person was the subordinate. Uh, you know, there are other other instances of this as well, um, where essentially, if people aren't sure, you know, who's supposed to be the top person here? How is this hierarchy going to be settled? Then conflict is is more likely. I've also been reading uh, uh, this book um, by Diego Gambetta, Codes of the Underworld, about uh, criminals. And he documents research in prisons and finds that um, when prisoners don't know each other, fights are way more likely to break out than when prisoners have been around each other for a long time. And he posits that this is because they're actually trying to gain information from one another. They're trying to elicit those signals. Um, when you have a new guy in the prison, they immediately want to size him up, you know, see what he's made out of. If, uh, if he gets into a conflict with another prisoner, all the other prisoners will surround and say, fight, fight, fight. Like we, They want to know what's this guy made of. But if they've all been around each other for a long time, number one, a fight is less likely to break out because they already know what the pecking order is. And number two, if a fight does break out, they're actually more likely to break it up than encourage it because they already know. Like they're not going to gain any signaling information. We don't need to create a problem in our little prison community. So let's just, you know, let's not, let's not get into this. Let's just break this up. I think I heard you on a podcast talking about schools or foster homes being something similar to that. When you get a group of sort of young kids together, that's they want to size each other up and see what yeah. see yeah, what yeah. they're made of. But once that's established, it doesn't really matter so much. I also read in one of the articles you sent me that we are less hierarchical than other primates. Is that right? Well, yeah, in in a sense, it is. So there's there's a lot of like debate about this in anthropology and um. But basically, what it looks like is, you know, according to like Christopher Bame and other other anthropologists, if you look at the ways that hunter-gatherer uh, communities are structured, uh, there's actually not a firm hierarchy. They do have sort of like, you know, what they sometimes call like big men or like sort of like elders or something who sort of make the decisions. And these are in like, you know, hunter-gatherer forger communities in, in South America or Africa or Papua New Guinea. Um, and they also believe that this was probably the case in early hunter-gatherer cultures as well, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago. Um, they, that hunter-gatherers don't like strict hierarchies, and they actually, um, 
will sort of downplay their own skills. So if there's a hunter who's particularly talented, um, if they sort of manage to, to take out a large animal, uh, the others around them, uh, around the, this talented hunter, will sort of make fun of how he threw his spear or how he runs or his appearance uh, because they don't want him to, uh, to basically get a big head. They don't want him to, to sort of feel arrogant or cocky. And this hunter will, will go along with it and say, like, ha you guys are right. Like, yeah. And they'll sort of play that, that, um, that role of being very humble and, and sort of downplaying their own skills. Uh, and this maintains social harmony within those communities. Um, they themselves may not necessarily put it this way, but it sort of suppresses envy. Uh, they don't want anyone to be too, high, too much higher than anyone else. Um, yeah, interestingly, like hunter gatherers tend to be more monogamous. They don't like if you know one one male uh, like basically takes up all the women, and they try to evenly distribute that as well in terms of like uh, romantic relationships. Uh, it wasn't until later, historically speaking, after the rise of agriculture, when people could stay in one place and accumulate wealth and resources that tyrants could emerge and standing armies and so on, and then you could have kings with harems of thousands of women or something. But if you're a nomadic hunter-gatherer, um, you can't really accumulate resources and you can't really sort of um, take out uh, you know, your male competitors uh, if they all gang up against you and you can't have like multiple wives. Yeah, I suppose that's one of the reasons for Dunbar's number being around about that, that it doesn't, once you get to sufficiently large, if you try and splinter off to form some sort of a person moat, you know, like a, a roving gang of hunter-gatherer mobs around you singing your loud music at night with your neons on like if you try and do that if you try and do that uh, you just splinter off into a new group um and you it requires a critical mass of people to actually be able to get that one person who was the the best hunter but decided not to be humble if he was a dick and if he if he was quite showy with it someone would just take him out after night a member of his family would take him out to the woods and kill him and then you would move on with your life. So yeah, it, it requires that that number of people, I suppose, and the structure as well, and the culture, uh, and the excess resources, and all of that stuff. So oddly, oddly, us maturing as a civilization is one of the ways that we've become less civilized, almost. Huh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I guess when you when you think about like civilization in terms of like oh agriculture and establishing settled communities and so on uh yeah i mean we did sort of stray from that egalitarian culture of you know that sort of dunbar number of of that small group the dunbar number for uh listeners is basically this idea that human beings have this upper uh cognitive capacity for how many people they can uh basically stay on personal terms with stay familiar with um and this is because hunter-gatherer bands usually comprise of about 150 people. Uh, and then modern research sort of supports this idea. Uh, if you look at the number of, on average, the number of Christmas cards people send out, the number of people they regularly stay in contact with on social media, you know, you might have a thousand Facebook friends, but you really only sort of regularly stay in contact with, you know, maybe 100 to 300 of them and sort of converges around 150. Um, and yeah, that, that's that's a very interesting idea. That I mean, to go back to your earlier point about sort of taking out the the arrogant, problematic male. Um, there was a recent book 
uh, by the, the Harvard anthropologist, I think he's an anthropologist, Richard Wrangham, The Goodness Paradox. And that whole book is about this idea of basically capital punishment, uh, domesticated humans. So he, he calls it self-domestication, um, where essentially early humans, uh, once they sort of, you know, created these hunter-gatherer bands, and there would be, you know, if there was like a sort of person who was creating a lot of problems, who maybe didn't care that much what others thought about him, who would hog up the resources, who would try to steal another person's life or whatever, um, the sort of lower, you know, or maybe the more humble uh, males, say, would would basically organize and plot and take this guy out, um, usually through the use of like um, like extended weapons that would put themselves at risk with spears or something like that. They would take him out or, or bows and arrows. Um, and so this was basically, over time, uh, after many iterations of this, uh, who are the humans that survive that sort of filtration mechanism? People who are you know, socially anxious, who care what others think about them, who are very alert to disapproval, who don't want to ruffle, ruffle people's feathers, who want to get along with the group because that feeling was adaptive uh, 50,000 years ago, if you, if suddenly, you know, the 150 members of your community gave you a look that made you think that there was something wrong with you, uh, that was an indicator that you may not be there for much longer. The implications are now so grave of you moving around the status hierarchy. I suppose, um, <clears throat> I'm, I've got this TEDx talk coming up and the, the nerves are pretty palpable, even though it's only three weeks away or still three weeks away. Um, and I think it's quite common people say that one of the most uncomfortable, scary things people have to do is public speaking. And that's supposedly an archetype, uh, uh, artifact of our time as hunter gatherers as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's research on, for example, uh, cortisol responses. So cortisol is a hormone associated with stress. Um, Researchers have measured the level of cortisol in sort of like lab settings. They'll bring participants in and have them do stressful tasks. Um, so, for example, if you ask participants to do um, like mental arithmetic or solving some difficult crossword puzzles, and then they'll take a saliva sample and measure the amount of cortisol they release. Um, so they'll they'll take that measure and then they'll have you know other participants do other kinds of stressful tasks like deliver a speech in front of a large crowd. Or, uh, or a recording, like a video recording of themselves that they believe will be seen by some important person, these sort of socially stressful tasks. And researchers have found that in, in the, those more socially stressful tasks, cortisol levels are three times higher than in the non-social stressful tasks. So if you're sort of doing something difficult, but you know no one's going to see, no one's going to care, you'll feel a little stressed. But if you know people are going to be judging you, that's much more, uh, just much more risky, uh, much more stressful. Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, I've also, I can't remember the specifics of this research, but, um, Naomi Eisenberger, she's a neuroscientist who has, she basically posited something that if you experience disapproval from your social circle, um, and, and this might be related to like delivering a speech where you're afraid that they may disapprove of you. The reason why your uh, heartbeat increases and your blood vessels constrict and so on is because your body is preparing in, in anticipation of either a physical attack or exile. Um, and so that is, you know, this, this is not, this is just a sort of a speculation, but I find that to be quite interesting and shows like what, what's at stake in those moments, right? So you're saying if I do 
too bad of a TEDx talk. I'm going to have to leave Newcastle. Yes, they will exile you. Oh, fuck's uh, sake. Or I'm going to be I'm going to be chased chased out of there with a spear. Man, I've got um, I have a, almost an endless number of examples that reinforce that point that you just brought up there. Uh, first one, I I've done two reality TV shows. One of them, the first stage involved a live audience of 400 people. The second one, and and went out to maybe a couple of million. The second one was over three and a bit weeks, probably accumulated tens of millions of viewers across that time, but was just done with the people that were on the show and no audience. First show, despite the fact that it quantifiably, objectively reached far fewer people's eyes because they weren't there in front of me because they were on the other side of a camera and then the other side of a TV screen, didn't matter. Another one, um, I think I told you this before, I was riding a moped in uh, Bali. I came off the moped because... I was paying 50 pence a day for a moped like a dick. And I came off when I pulled the brakes, hit the floor. The two guys that I was with came over. The first thing that I felt ahead of um, fear for my personal safety, worries about the fact I was leaving half of my skin on this Balinese course road, the fact that there was still traffic moving back and forth because it's Bali and they're psychopaths. The first thing that I felt was like shame and embarrassment ahead of physical risk. I felt social embarrassment. That was how high on my list of pri- list of priorities it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, our social image is 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 critical. Um, there, you know, along these lines, uh, there there's been some some interesting research in the last five years or so, uh, basically comparing social pain with with physical pain. And what neuroscientists have basically found is that they they are overlapping neural regions. They occupy sort of the same real estate in our brain. Uh, when you experience social pain, the same part of your brain activates the anterior cingulate cortex. Uh, and the, so basically, if you are experiencing social exclusion um, or some kind of like damage to your image, your status, uh, it, it sort of feels similar to actual physical pain. And what's more interesting, I find, is that when researchers have asked participants to um, basically say, like, think back to a time. So the first they ask, you know, they, they recruit participants who have experienced some major physical or socially painful event. And they ask them, um, you know, how much pain did you feel at that time when you got into that car accident or broke that bone? Um, and they ask them, how much pain did you feel when you went through that breakup or when you found out your friend betrayed you or whatever the socially painful thing it was? Uh, there's actually no difference when they ask them how painful it was. Uh, they say both of those things, whether it's betrayal or breaking a bone, those both feel the same. But then when they ask those participants to reimagine it, like imagine that you're back there again, uh, now how much pain do you feel? Uh, they actually remember the socially painful event to be more painful than the physically painful one. And they've also found that um, oftentimes people have difficulty in, their recollect, in trying to recollect um, physical pain. Uh, it's, it's hard. Like if you broke a bone and you're trying to think back, like, what did that actually feel like? It's actually quite difficult for, for many people, but almost everyone can remember what that tough breakup feels like uh, or, you know, what it was like to sort of be excluded from a group you wanted to join or something. Um, that feeling sort of remains with us over time and endures more so than the physical pain. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, one thing is perhaps because physical pain is so almost instinctually aversive um, that you don't need to remember it. There's right? nothing like, to learn from it. Already, 
Exactly. You already know that that's whatever it is. Like jumping in front of a car is a bad idea. You already know that. Whereas I, I almost think that like maybe because the social parts of ourselves and our brains and our psychology, it's more sort of evolutionarily recent. And so we still have to sort of learn, learn the hard way, so to speak, that if you get embarrassed or say something wrong, make a social faux pas, you want that pain to live on so that you remember, oh, don't do that bad thing again. Don't do that. Say that dumb word again or whatever it happens to be. But that's just speculation. Dude, I think that you're right. I wonder as well whether being hurt, uh, you know, seriously, if you broke a bone, probably up until 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, you were dead. And if you break your arm, you break your leg, you're probably dead. There's probably nothing to learn. How would how would the person that learns from breaking the bone or not learns from breaking the bone have ever been competed in or out of the gene pool? Because that person probably just dies. So I don't know whether it would have had had a chance to interact. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would have. I don't know enough about like what what those early like human uh, clans and tribes were like. But I, I mean, probably, if you were a young person, you might be able to survive some of those kinds of injuries. But it would be. I mean, it's nothing like today. I mean, it would be like you know very risky. Yeah. Uh, but that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, is the goal of signaling usually status? Then is that why people are doing it? They want to somehow move up in terms of status right well i mean so that's definitely one goal social status itself is usually uh at least more recently it's been sort of uh divided into two kinds of pathways uh so there's sort of two paths at the top i've heard described as so there's uh there's dominance so one path to obtaining status is is, is dominance so this is uh, basically the ability to impose physical costs on someone so someone like like Joseph Stalin or something like that is he's he's high status right but he's he's uh, high status because of his dominance his ability to hurt you, um, whereas the other pathway is uh, is prestige so this is the uh, another component of status, and this is um, basically someone's someone's sort of respect and admiration like how much respect and admiration other have others have for them so someone like uh, like Stephen Hawking, right? Like Stephen Hawking is not dominant. You're probably not afraid Stephen Hawking is going to impose any physical costs on you, but you respect his intellect and his ability to communicate science or whatever. Um, and so those are sort of two distinct pathways. Another way I've, I've heard this described is that uh, dominance is, you know, that kind of status is what people can do to you, whereas prestige status is what people can do for you. Um, and so you would want to make us, you know, make uh, relationships, build relationships and associations with those prestigious individuals and almost want to avoid the dominant ones. Um, I think it sort of depends on your society and the incentive structure and so on. But at least I think in the modern West, people are much more preoccupied with signaling uh, prestige. Uh, you know, they want to be admired. They want to be respected. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of interesting research indicating that you know, when you ask people, you know, what you know, sort of what's associated with well-being and and how good people feel and living a comfortable life and so on, and people will usually point to socioeconomic status, how much money you have, maybe uh, you know the kind of job you work and so on. But actually, um, social status or so sociometric status, which is uh, respect and admiration from your peers, that is a much stronger relationship with well-being and self-esteem than socioeconomic status. So. 
you know, basically, you could have all this money, but you may not feel that great if you're if you're not well liked, if people around you don't like you, if you don't have many friends, the friends you do have, maybe you have doubts about how much you know how much respect they have for you. Uh, and so, signaling a key component of it is to uh, basically build relationships with people, friendships, associates, um, and of course, uh, romantic partners. Um, seen people ask this question about, um, you know, because a lot of people sort of read, you know, sort of pop psychology books about evolutionary psychology, and they'll say like, okay, so we know that men want to do these cool, impressive things because they want to impress women, but then why do women want to do these things? Like, why do women want to become lawyers and, and drive nice cars and wear fancy clothes and stuff too? Well, the thing is like, it's not, it's not just about me. It's also about our associates and our friends and our community, right? Like, you want to obtain the best friends you can and sort of build the, the highest quality relationships you can with the most interesting people. And it's not just men who want to do that. Women want to do that too. It seems to me that dominance rather than prestige, dominance is quite obvious. It's mm. probably more uncouth and looked down on generally by society you know, if you're imposing your will on someone else and that's how you're raising yourself up, people are happy at seeing someone raise themselves up through their own talents. They're far less happy at seeing someone raise themselves up by dragging other people down. It seems like uh, culturally and legislatively, dominance status-seeking has been restricted, whereas prestige status-seeking has been enabled. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I guess it would depend on you know, again, like sort of the incentive structure and, 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 and sort of culturally, I would imagine somewhere in like a prison, for example, dominance goes uh, much further than, than prestige um, or, or in like organized, like the mafia, right? Like they but look, look at the situation. That's the example. It's where the laws have been removed, right? So uh, I see. Yeah, I think. No, I think that you're cool. correct. What are some status seeking behaviors that people might not realize they're doing? Right. Well, so it depends on, you know, even prestige itself uh, is, is a sort of difficult to pin down, you know, what, what makes someone prestigious? Uh, well, for one, uh, education, right? Like people tend to want to show off how smart they are uh, and how clever they are or witty, um, which basically indicates that this person can probably be a problem solver or someone who, uh, you know, basically I can rely on to uh, solve solve problems or or to have interesting conversations or whatever it happens to be. Um, so how do we sort of signal our smarts uh, in the modern age? Well, I think clearly one of them is is education, right? Higher education, um, getting good grades, going to college, those kinds of things. Um, Jeffrey Miller uh, has written at length about this in one of his books. I think it's it was his second. This book spent, I think it was where he basically says that like, you know, people are spending that, at least this is in the US context, people are spending vast sums of money to, to go to college, right? Like, I don't know what it is now. If you wanna get a degree from Harvard, it's $200,000 or something like that. And Miller posits that a huge reason for why people are doing this uh, isn't for the education because you can just go on YouTube and watch like super high quality lectures from the best scholars in the world for free. Um, you know, you can listen to podcasts or whatever, like all the information is out there and it's available. 
So why would people spend, you know, fifty to two hundred thousand dollars to get that piece of paper? Uh, and militias, that basically serves as a guarantee of like a minimal level of competence. Um, you know, there's no way for me to look at you or and basically learn how clever you are if you've watched a bunch of YouTube videos. But if you can put on your CV and show me that you earned a diploma from this university, I know a little something about you and you might be willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars to prove that to me. Um, and then this, of course, will open the open more economic opportunities for you to get a job and then earn more money. And so earning money, of course, signals resourcefulness and, and a little bit of competence to some degree as well. So that's an interesting question, actually. What are the uh, characteristics we want to show other people? And I definitely think uh, one of them is, is smarts. What is the difficult to fake element of all of this? Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, biologists have distinguished between what they call a cheap talk or um, you know, sort of cheap signals, which are things that anyone can do, right? I think um, in the past, in the mid-20th century, uh, it used to actually be a, a little bit more difficult uh, to obtain a, like a high, school, high school diploma. Uh, fewer people could actually go in the first place because oftentimes kids would have to work or whatever. Um, and then once that became sort of the norm that everyone graduates from high school today, that, that, um, that credential doesn't have the same signaling power. So you know, if I try to impress you with my high school diploma today, you may not be so surprised. So now I have to do something extra, go above and beyond, and sort of obtain uh, that more uh, honest signal, the costly signal of going to college. So both uh, somehow acquiring the money to go to college and then completing the degree signals, uh, you know, all, all of the qualities I had just mentioned. Um, and this, I think this brings us to something about signaling that's important to remember, which is that um, it's not, uh, like signaling is not like, like, it's not deception, it's not faking. I, I think people sometimes get these ideas mixed up and they're, you know, they think like, oh, he's just signaling. So that means he's not really doing the thing. Um, but actually signaling is, is signaling wouldn't work if, if, um, if it was completely de de deception, all deception, right? right? It has to have, it has to communicate some real information, otherwise it wouldn't survive as a system. And for the most part, um, only people who have the underlying quality can afford to produce the signal, just like with the peacock, right? The peacock, only the healthy peacock can, can grow those feathers. So we call that a signal, um, but this is not to say that that, that tail isn't real or something, uh, or yeah. that the peacock is sort of... I suppose that the equivalent, using the education analogy, would be someone can sound as smart or as dumb as you want during a, a short transaction, but it's only the person that's gone through five years of university that has the piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. This, yeah, yeah. There's this quote from Robin Hansen, which I loved. And he says that if we are built to hide ugly motives and substitute pretty ones, we should suspect that our actual motives are uglier than we think. I think that that's like a Hansen's razor that we can oh, use. Man. So, so the razor would be what that whatever you think your motive is, it's probably worse than that. Yes, precisely, Man. precisely correct. <laughs> so, I was talking to Diana Fleischman uh, recently, and she was talking about how she has so little faith in herself. This is a woman who is balls deep in all of the Eve Psych work, and she just never she she has zero faith in herself. She just sees herself as this myriad of competing 
very unactualized, sort of totally complex and, and, and mostly conflicting ideas floating around in her head. And uh, she just doesn't believe anything that she's got going on. She said that she feels like an alien who's been put into a human's body. She said this on the, on the episode. She feels like an alien who's been put into a human's body. And at some point in the future, she's going to have to report back to the aliens about what it was like. And I suppose what she's at, because she's quite big into mindfulness as well. And I think what she's talking about there is the fact that when you are very conscious of the texture of your own mind, and where the motivations are coming from or could be coming from for why you act the way that you act, you actually do end up living the observer life rather than the behavior life because you're constantly meta-questioning, very metacognizant about why did I do that thing? Why does this feel? Isn't it interesting that I feel anxious? Oh, I can feel it in my neck. I've got the mindfulness. I've got the justification from evolutionary psychology about why anxiety feels that way. I can see the socio-cultural reason of why it's occurred because of this situation. And yeah, it, it actually probably makes it very difficult, oddly, to be present. All the mindfulness probably takes you out of the present because you're so fascinated at what's going on up top. That's, yeah, that is super interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like very much like a, like an evolutionary psychologist perspective uh, and, and how they sort of live in their own heads in that way. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that, that, that makes sense to me, though, that like the more you learn about the inner workings of your own mind and your psychology and how you know, all of these things interact, the more you might uh, start to maybe second guess yourself, second guess your motives. You know, why did I use that tone of voice with that person? Um, you know, why do I feel this? I mean, I think one example of this uh, is uh, I, I've heard this from multiple people too, like in, like in the fitness realm, where like if you're trying to get in really good shape, uh, at first it's actually pretty easy. Like that first sort of few weeks, it's actually pretty easy to sort of you know lose the weight and build yourself up or whatever. But then at a certain point, like people sort of hit that plateau. Uh, and you know, number one, it sort of becomes harder to maybe lose the weight or, or make that, that incremental strength gain. And sort of you start to like lose motivation too. So the, both the motivation causes you to hit the plateau, but then the plateau also causes you to lose motivation. And I think part of what's going on there is basically your body recognizes that something is changing, right? Like homeostasis has been disrupted. You lost a bunch of fat or whatever your fat cells are shrinking something's going on in your body and then it just hits the alarm button and it's like let's take his energy away like let's take his motivation away let's make him hungry like let's sort of make him not care as much like you know whatever the like smells will will be uh sort of more apparent and powerful when you walk past that bakery right like suddenly your body is working against you so that you're not making your next fitness goal and that to me makes a lot of sense that like something so physical it puts your body, you know, your body doesn't know that you're just trying to lose a few pounds, right? Like it thinks you're starving. And so it's like, what are you doing? Like suddenly it transforms your psychology. Uh, and I think this might be sort of, yeah, maybe like a similar example to, to what maybe Diana was talking about. We're just in a battle against ourselves, aren't we? And this goes back to what I said at the very beginning about us being cargo on the ship you're just along for the ride there was this cool thing that you sent about the cycle of conspicuous leisure conspicuous consumption conspicuous non-conformity and then conspicuous authenticity that we have now um it was basically talking about what is the status seeking behavior that people are going through so 
early in the 1900s, conspicuous leather people, uh, leather, conspicuous leather, people go in really expensive shoes, conspicuous leisure, people going away on holiday, conspicuous consumption, people are buying expensive cars, conspicuous non-conformity, counterculture revolution, 60s, 70s, it's just peace, man. And then the final one, which is the most painful one, I think, conspicuous authenticity, which is where people are open about their, uh, their inner concerns, about their fears, about their goals, about their dreams, and think about what we're talking so much in popular media at the moment, like Jordan Peterson. Like it's all about personal growth, accepting your demons, facing the tyranny head on. Do you know what I mean? That is conspicuous authenticity. It's a status-seeking behavior. It shows, look, I am. this is how trustworthy I am. This is how much you can have faith in me. I wouldn't. I, I, I'm so virtuous that I can be completely open and honest with you, and I'm still going to be okay. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there is a so, so there is a, a sort of costly signaling component to that, right? Where, like, if you are um, revealing your vulnerabilities and insecurities, you know, trying to be maximally authentic. Um, I think, you know, and, and again, it isn't conscious, but I think a, a part of that is that you're sort of communicating that, like. I am in a position where I can sort of show you my weaknesses and I'll still be okay, right? Like I'm so sort of, you know, in such a comfortable position, I'm so secure with myself uh, that I can do that. Whereas, yeah, I, I could imagine that in, in other environments, um, revealing your weaknesses is probably a very bad idea. So I could, yeah, maybe, maybe if a society reaches a level of comfort, then the way to sort of distinguish yourself in that comfortable reality is to sort of reveal your, your vulnerabilities, which actually reminds me, uh, if, if we want to get into this, is the, the, the counter-signaling idea. You know, there are signals and then there's counter-signals, right? Which is uh, it, it, more evidence, I suppose, that there's no escaping the signaling game. So, you know, signals are basically what we've been talking about thus far, communicating information about yourself. Uh, counter-signals are basically trying to do the reverse of what the signalers are trying to do to distinguish yourself from them, uh, and thereby raising your own status in some way. So, uh, a simple example of this. Uh, see, I'm, I'm trying. So, so there's a research, for example, on um, I think this is PhD dissertations, and what the researchers found was that um, at lower ranking universities in the U.S., the linguistic complexity of the dissertations uh, was higher. Sort of the the lower you know, whatever, like the lower, lower uh, ranked the schools, the less prestigious the schools, the more the students were trying to, say, impress uh, the reader with how fancy the jargon is or whatever. Whereas at the higher ranking universities, the linguistic complexity was actually lower. And the idea here is that, you know, I'm, I'm already at this great university. I don't need to impress anyone with my language. You already know that I'm smart, right? Like that's sort of the idea. So they're sort of counter signaling. I don't need to use the jargon because I'm already so great. They've done this too with um, professors, uh, and they find that professors at lower-ranked universities are much more likely to insist on their title. You know, I'm Dr. So-and-so, I'm Professor So-and-so. They put it on their syllabus, they put it on their voicemail, on their door, whatever. And at the higher-ranking universities, um, they're less likely to insist on the title. Uh, oftentimes, they just say, call me by my first name. Uh, you know, on their syllabus and their voicemail and so on, on their email signatures, they'll often just put their name. Uh, and the thinking here is sort of similar. If you're at a lower ranking university, you want to sort of 
you know, remind everyone like, okay, maybe I'm at this learning school, but I'm still a, I'm still a professor, right? I'm still a doctor or whatever. Uh, and the higher ranking universities that can counter signal against that. But it's not just in academia. I think this works in multiple different ways. How you dress, for example, I think, uh, you know, there's a reason why people in tech will wear a hoodie to work, right? That's counter signaling. The uh, red sneaker effect is the name for this. It's the mental model that was found done at conventions for business leaders, and they managed to quantify how formally people were dressed. And there was a, an inverse correlation between the uh, how formal dress someone was in and their net worth. And it's oh. the red sneaker effect. I learned that from Rory Sutherland. Um, that is interesting. I suppose the interesting thing about status-seeking behavior is that as soon as it looks overtly status-seeking, the whole house of cards tumbles. Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I don't think anyone would necessarily like like think of it in that way. But I, I think that once the signal becomes too ubiquitous to where it no longer communicates distinctive information, that's when something has to change and people will shift away from it. So I would say that you know, like we don't respect behavior that's done mainly to gain status though, right? Like if someone looks like they're just doing it to look good, they're just a flash a flash prick. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, okay. I, I get what you're saying. And if yeah, we don't like that. I mean it, it seems like too smarmy, brown nosing or whatever, where I'm thinking about like job interviews, for example, like often the interviewer will say, why do you want this job? And if the person just says like, I need money or like, you know, I'm trying to get this job to impress my friends or whatever it happens to be. If they use this very base level, like I'm just trying to increase my social or economic status in some way. No, they are asking you to impress me. What can you tell me that will sort of show me that you're not a status thinking person? How can you show me that you care about status without saying that you care about status? Uh, which in itself is actually sort of a test of competence in a way. So. Yeah. How much can you kid me into believing that? How? What about envy? How's envy related to status? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I think envy is one of the... So I've once heard envy described as like the only... So among the seven deadly sins, envy is the only one that people won't brag about. I don't know if this is true, but you know, I don't even know the other ones, but like gluttony or lust, like these are things that people will maybe fess up to, but I don't know how many people are willing to brag or openly communicate the envy they feel for others. Um, but yeah, essentially envy is this feeling that like someone else is rising above you in some way and you feel a little bit bad about it. And oftentimes will, you know, if you have the chance, sabotage them. Um, there's this research, uh, I, can't, I, I know that uh, William von Hippel, can, you know, he writes about this in his book. Um, basically what they did was they had, uh, they brought in groups like pairs, pairs of people into the lab and had to play a game. Um, so in some instances it was two friends. They bring two friends in. So uh, at first one of the friends would be playing this game and the other friend would have the chance to sort of shell, share clues to help them win the game. Uh, what the researchers did was they rigged the game so that the, the first person who's playing the game, uh, they rig it every time so that that person always gets negative feedback. They're like, oh, you really did poorly at this sort of verbal puzzle task. And then they have them switch. Uh, and then, same thing, the, the friend is playing the game. The one who was just told they didn't do very well is now the one sharing clues. And what they found, so they did it with pairs of friends and they did it with pairs of strangers. And what they found was that when it was pairs of friends, 
the friend who had been the person who had been told they did poorly would was more helpful to to their friend than people were to strangers. But they were only more helpful if they were told that the task was trivial. If they were told that this is a task of that that, that is an accurate measure of verbal intelligence, then they were actually less helpful to the friend than they were to the stranger. They were actually trying to kind of sabotage, you could think about their friend after they realize like, oh, I'm maybe I'm not very smart. I don't want my friend to think that he or she is much, much smarter than me. So maybe I'll be careful with what clues that I share. Uh, and they were more likely to do this with their friend than with a stranger, which gets at this idea of, you know, we tend to feel envy more for people who we think of as roughly on the same level as us. Um, it's pretty rare that someone feels a ton of envy for someone who's just so far above them that like, it's just not realistic, right? Like, you know, an ordinary person isn't going to look at, I don't know, George Clooney and feel some kind of envy when they see him make another movie or something. But they might feel a little bit of envy if they find out that their uh, coworker just got a promotion or someone in their field just did, you know, someone wants some kind of prestigious award or something. Um, and what they what researchers have found is that people will experience, you know, what's called schadenfreude, which is pleasure at the suffering of others is sort of the literal translation of it. But they feel schadenfreude the most when they see someone experience misfortune who's similar to themselves. Um, and so when you have people sort of learn about someone, read about someone who's kind of similar to you, but doing just a little bit better, and then suddenly something bad happens to them, people feel that little burst of joy uh, relative to someone who's just not really in your social circle, not really in your sort of you know, your Dunbar number or something. They're so far outside of your sphere. Something bad happens to them. You don't, you don't really feel as much about what happens to them. You don't feel as much pleasure, at least. Why do you think that's there? Well, some people have speculated this is sort of due to sort of uh, mating competition. Um, I think there's a reason why. You know, we tend to feel more shot and put for people who are the same gender as us. Um, if something, you know, if a, if a woman experiences misfortune, guys are, you know, they're less likely to feel happy about that. But if it's a guy who experiences misfortune, they're like, well, good. You know, I'm glad he, you know, now, I, now I'm a little bit higher than him now. Uh, and so some researchers speculate, oh, this is because, you know, if, if someone is roughly on your level, they are a sexual competitor or maybe a competitor for friends, for allies. Uh, and so it might feel good to see them sort of slip up a little bit. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I guess this is one of those sort of dark motives, the Hanson's razor kind of thing of like, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to, to acknowledge and accept that this is a, a part of our nature, but I think maybe acknowledging it helps us to, to, you know, maybe mitigate it a little bit. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That, to me seems to play out so much more especially over the last couple of years and um i asked a question on my instagram that i got a lot of a lot of answers to but none of them were that satisfying so i'm going to pass the question down to you and it was around why people converge on dislike groups a lot more tightly knit than on things that they like so for instance if you were to go onto reddit and you were to have a look at Dave Rubin's subreddit, it's been hijacked by people who really hate Dave Rubin. It is okay. so much more patriotic for hating Dave Rubin than anyone that liked Dave Rubin has ever been. If you go on to The Fighter and the Kid, 
it's exactly the same. Brian Callen and Brandon Shop. It's just there's memes. They've got inner culture. They've got inner workings. Dude, it is savage. It's so bad, and it's a lot of people. I'm going to guess are probably across the board, or they've just both of the groups have arrived at the same sort of talking cadence uh, separately. Why do you think it is that people find negativity so cohesive as something to bind together around? Again, as just a, a final example, there are certain YouTube channels out there. Um, Philion is one of them. Greg Doucette is another. More Plates, More Dates. Derek is another. They do these Natty or Not videos where they call out people. They basically get suggested, is this fitness model on gear or not? Almost, right. al- almost always there's an open-ended, well, he might be, or like he probably is, or this seems unrealistic. There is no equivalent on the positive side of that. There is no, isn't this guy in such great condition channel. There isn't an equivalent of that. There isn't an equivalent of the people that love Dave Rubin. Is it to do with people not wanting to just look like simps on the internet? Or is it something more is it something more ingrained? Why do we bind together around mutual distaste so closely? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so in related uh, related idea from political psychology research, um, what researchers have recently found is that uh, so at least until relatively recently, if you measured people's attitudes towards this is in the US context, Democrats and Republicans, how much they like their own party versus dislike the other party, people tended to have more love for their party than hate for the out party, right? Like up until roughly 2012, that was the case. And then starting in 2012, their hate for the out party was much higher than their love for their own party. So if you're a Democrat, it's not so much that you like Democrats, it's just you really hate Republicans and vice versa. Right. And this has been growing. So 2016, it grew more. And then 2020 just continues. So, so suddenly we're uniting more around our dislike of the out party than our own in party uh, in terms of politics, which I think is sort of getting at what you're saying here. But in terms of why it's just, yeah, who really it's it's a tough. I think one thing that comes to mind is, um, well, Roy Baumeister just has a book. It came out, I think, last year, the year before uh, uh, something like The Power of Bad or something. Uh, which is basically like if you look at a lot of psychology research, uh, there's a, this idea of negativity bias, that the bad stands out stronger than the good. Um, you're more likely to remember bad things, uh, uh, sort of lock your attention onto negative information. It's likely to stay with you. There's even research uh, on social media uh, for what kinds of posts get shared and retweeted. And overwhelmingly, so like the top 15 words that um, basically if you, each one of these words that you put in your tweet increases the likelihood of getting retweeted by 20%. And overwhelmingly, there are words like attack, blame, bad, kill, destroy, hate. Um, and there's like, out of 15 words, there's like three nice ones. It's like, you know, care or something. But even care can be used in a negative context. Like, who cares, right? Um, and so I think this gets at something about maybe our psychology that like, if something is bad, it just like activates our emotions more and I don't know there is something about like wanting to tear someone down that just feels satisfying when you're doing it with others yeah so that's part of it the next step is why does that bind people together why do they find a commonality around this mutual is it as simple as in-group out-group tribalism yeah I think that well so if that 
that thing that they're uniting around is clearly an enemy, uh, you know, it can be perceived as a threat, then, you know, we, we can all sort of agree that like, okay, maybe we have some quibbles about the principles of our own community, but we can all definitely agree that what that person is doing is wrong. There's no arguing. It just feels good. Like a disagreement can be uncomfortable, uh, but, you know, agreement is nice. And in this, you know, if we can all sort of collectively agree that that's something bad, then I think there is a sort of, there's a, a bonding experience there. Um, there's even you know, some researchers, I think Pascal Boyer, he has suggested, so he had his book, Minds Make Societies, and he suggested that um, it's actually advantageous to exaggerate. Uh, so if you perceive someone as a threat, it's in your best interest to exaggerate their misdeeds. Um, you know, number one, because, you know, if you want allies, you want to convince them. You want them to be on the same page emotionally as you. And so if they said something, used a word or whatever, and you think it's bad, um, you know, if other people don't think it's bad, you have to really sort of convince them that like, well, if they say this, this is putting our lives at risk, it's putting our safety at risk or our community or these communities that we care about. And so it's in their best interest to magnify every single potential interpretation into something that's horrible. Um, one, because it, it wins you allies. And then number two is, if you want to know who's truly your ally, who's really on your team, um, broadcasting those misdeeds and then seeing how people react to it will let you know who's on my team and who's not on my team. Um, and so if I say, this person said bad thing and it puts us all at risk, and out of 10 people, seven of them are on my side, but three of them are like, well, I'm not so sure that was so bad. Now you know, oh, those are the three people. Those can be next that we can all unite around, right? Like those are the next people to be on the on the chopping board. I wonder if part of it is game theoretical. I wonder if some of it is to do with the fact that if you're seeking agreement with people about a thing, there are multiple different ways that they might not arrive at how you think that thing is good. Whereas if you're seeking disagreement, oh, sorry, if you're seeking agreement about a thing being bad versus if you're seeking agreement about a thing being good, the agreement about someone that you don't like might be easier to arrive at because it's, it's far more simple to just, I hate that person than we like this. But, oh, yeah, but do you also like this about it? Do you also like this about it? I, I wonder whether the negativity bias shows up in the fact that it's just simpler and it's easier to signal that you are part of the same team by doing it in that sort of a way. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, you also maybe don't have to provide as many justifications. Uh, if you hate something and you can say, you know, X, Y, Z, like, you know, it's just, I think it's easier to justify why you hate something versus if you like something, then you have to put up an argument for why it's good. Yeah, it might be harder. Um, liking things, yeah, maybe it just doesn't have the same emotional punch. I've seen research, uh, so this was out of, I think, Stanford, where they basically uh, looked at how people choose to, or how people do bond over shared likings of things, how much they like something and what the thing happens to be. And what they find is that you know, basically, if two people learn that one another likes a popular band, and then you ask them, you know, how their favorability ratings of each other, you know, it's, it's okay, whatever, like they like the same band as me. If it's like the Rolling Stones, if it's a popular band, but if it's an obscure band that very few people have heard of, then their favorability ratings are much higher, right? Like, oh my God, you know that band too? Like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And so I 
think like liking is just more nuanced. It's harder. There are more. There's more complications with it. Whereas hate, right? Like, you know, if yeah, if you can collectively agree that you hate someone, like that's just you know that's just easy, right? And and yeah, yeah, yeah it's just it's tough. I think it's a. Uh, I think it's it's a pretty dark a dark aspect of our our psychology that here. So yeah. A reason that I think so, I, I spend far more time than I care to admit thinking about Dave Rubin and Brendan Schaub's subreddits. Like, I, okay. it's just you will go go and have a look at them, man. They're an absolute dumpster fire of like really. And if they weren't so funny, it wouldn't be as bad. But there's like some really quite innovative humor on there. And what I was trying to work out, what I was trying to work out was what the common thread between dave and brendan is that people had a problem with part of it is uh visibility it's the fact that these guys have managed to get themselves to a sufficiently high social status that people are like actually yeah fuck this guy but the common thread and the term that kind of underlies it is grifter so what they're concerned about is someone being unreliable i think I think that's the the underlying term of it, that there are these montages of Joe Rogan saying a thing and then Brendan Schaub agreeing with him. Have you seen these? I have not. Dude, they go on for they go on for like minutes, like tens of minutes of Joel say like, you know, he's the baddest guy on the planet and Brendan will go, Oh, the baddest, you know, totally the baddest. And it's just endless medleys of this. And I think what people are potentially trying to highlight there is this person is untrustworthy they're prepared to compromise what they believe uh in service of someone who is slightly higher status than them uh so brendan always kind of um he's got that younger brother older brother kind of relationship thing going on with rogan rogan says something he reflects it back to him you have dave rubin as well who gets accused of having pivoted from one particular viewpoint to another particular viewpoint when that political movement seemed to be like more on trend. He then attaches himself to Jordan Peterson. He then attaches himself to the IDW. Like none of these things, I don't have a particularly strong opinion. I've never met Brendan Schaub and I've spoken to Dave Rubin for 55 minutes. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but I think that that's the signal that people are mm. trying to identify and one of the things that I've realized, and this is a really interesting part of having your conversations watched, is if I don't disagree with people sufficiently frequently on this show, you get you get a slippery slope of people okay. just... Pre- even if... The, I could have a thousand guests and I could agree with every single thing that they said by pure chance without compromising my values or being a simp. But people on the internet are so simp conscious. They're so like grift aware that they're just ready on tenterhooks to go, this guy appears to not be not be pushing back. You didn't push back enough. Well, what if I did what if I agreed? Like what am I gonna push back against? What if I agreed? But there is a, a very hyper aware grift sense, grift radar that people have on the internet. Hmm. Yeah, I mean I think maybe part of that is, okay, so, so there's research on basically how people tend to obtain a sort of status in social groups. And one way that people do it 
is through displaying competence, and another way people do it is through ingratiation, sort of displaying warmth or uh, friendliness. And that's actually the strategy that people tend to use when they're trying to get people to like them in social groups. Um, and in fact, displaying too much competence gets people to like dislike them uh, if they're trying to advertise their, their abilities. But if they're sort of getting along with people, agreeing, nodding, friendly, being, you know, sort, of, sort of smiling a lot, this is a strategy that people use to gain status, and it, it tends to work. Um, I've seen research on like MBA students, for example, uh, the, the ones that obtain the most status in like their sort of group projects or whatever, the people who are the most friendly, who share the most knowledge, who are you know, basically doing nice things. Um, but I think that, you know, the media, like, like social media and the internet, it does like weird things like to those, like if you're just trying to be nice and friendly to someone and sort of learn what they have to say, what they have to think, like, you know, that is a perfectly natural way to communicate with someone. But then when you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people watching, I think like some percentage of them are going to be like, you know, oh, he's, he's you know, ingratiating himself too much. He's not sort of pushing back or like you're saying, you know, I think they are sensitive to people who are, who they believe to be like seeking status. Yeah, right? dude, in, do you know what they don't approve of? Do you know what I think it might be? that i've just i've just considered there the guys who criticize regularly on youtube channels coffeezilla for instance and guys like Philion and greg Doucette and derek from more plates more dates they very rarely get mocked maybe what they're signaling is i am so competent i am so high status that i never need to ingratiate myself with anyone and I can still rise up through the dominance hierarchy. Interesting. Yeah, that, that I think there's something to that. I mean, it, it may also depend on your audience. I mean, I don't know what their audience is or whatever, but like, I think maybe it could depend on who you're, who you're drawing, who you're attracting. I think something else might, you know, it, it, it's complicated, of course, but I think one thing might also be people may just be simply experiencing envy um, I, I noticed that you mentioned, so th there's the Brian guy, right? Like that's, he's a target of these people's attacks, but not Joe himself. I mean, I know Joe gets his, his share of hate on the internet, Rogan, but it's not, I guess it's not the same. And one, this is, this is, you know, just purely speculative, but I could imagine one reason is because people might like sort of think that Brian is more closer to their level, right? Mm -hmm. Like they could imagine. So he's the Joe easy Rogan target. Yeah, like I could imagine hanging out with Joe, being his younger brother, being in that position, but they couldn't necessarily imagine being Joe Rogan himself. Ruben, uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, like I, I'm a big fan of it. You know, Ruben. I've, I've watched some of his videos and whatever. But like, you know, like maybe they just think that he's sort of not uh, impressive enough to be sufficiently beyond them. Yeah, right? that that could be it as well. Both of those guys, both Brendan and Dave, do kind of play second string to a, a front man that is, yeah. you know, your Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, or your Joe Rogan, Brian Callen. Uh, yeah, that's fucking, that's interesting, man. What do you think, what about COVID-19? How's that affected or changed the way that people get status? Yeah, well, yeah, this has been interesting. I think it's been, uh, I've heard multiple people describe the lockdowns as being like a boon for introverts. 
right? Like, I mean, so I just attended uh, an academic conference this past weekend. And, you know, I talked to some people in my department about this, like other graduate students, and they were like, the introverts were like, oh, that was awesome. Because like, you could just send some little message through the web app. And the presentations were all through like Zoom. And if you wanted to like network, it was just through these little chat rooms or whatever. And then like maybe set up a Skype meeting or something later. But uh, the extroverts in my department were like, that was awful. Like I didn't get to talk to anyone. Like I didn't get to, you know, meet up with people. There was no like, you know, impromptu coffee or drinks after. Like usually this conference is in person and you can sort of schmooze a little bit. But, you know, online you're sort of, you know, more limited, more constrained. And I think for introverts, this is uh this is creating some opportunities. Um yeah, it's also harder in some ways, I think, for extroverts, right? Like they can't get out as much. But I don't know, I've also seen some conflicting research as well that extroverts are actually handling the lockdowns better than introverts. Uh, some people speculate that extroverts are, are still being extroverted just on the internet. Um, they're still using Zoom and meetings and FaceTime and whatever to, to stay in contact with people, whereas introverts are, you know, they're not forced to be social anymore, which, of course, they might think that that's great and nice, but oftentimes, you know, they may not be aware of how much they need that those social interactions to stay healthy, right? Um, I mean, in fact, there's actually research on this on like authenticity, uh, to go back to the, the earlier point about authenticity, that people tend to feel more authentic, regardless of their actual personality, just, you know, just, uh, dispositions, they feel more authentic after they have behaved in a more extroverted fashion. Uh, and so if you, if you think about, you know, you might think that people feel more authentic when they behave in line with, you know, who they are. But actually, they behave more, you know, they, they feel authentic when they behave in line with who they want to be, which is usually someone who's friendly, outgoing, extroverted. That's sort of the cultural ideal. They've narrowed um, the, the, the domain of how you can gain status has been narrowed, though, right? Like the example of the very commanding boss who can just own the boardroom because of the, the way that he walks in and the suit that he wears and the car that he pulls up in outside and the way he smells and the watch he's got on and his body language, you know, that's all been reduced down to a little screen that he takes up a pixelated version of. So, you know, if I was a more ambitious graduate student, one idea that I had uh, was to basically, like, uh, try to figure out how people de detect status cues in webcam, Zoom, Skype environments, right? So, like, I'm looking at you, I look in your room, I sort of you know, see all of these cues, you know, you're, you're emitting, you know, even you yourself, you know, it's not you, it's your belongings. Those also emit signals as well. How people sort of encode those and what they, what they learn about people, what they, you know, how accurate those perceptions are, uh, how much they align with reality. I think that would be fascinating because, you know, like you're saying in the past, it was, you know, the boss in the office and, you know, maybe they're walking a certain way and they have that, the car and whatever. But there, to some degree, there is this kind of level playing field because you're all in the same building, doing the same stuff, adhering to the same dress code. But when you're working from home, you know, I've heard a lot of companies have sort of, you know, softened the dress code a little bit, um, maybe working different hours or whatever. And you can sort of see what's behind people, what, what you know, where they choose to work, what's behind them and so on. And I wonder if, people are looking at their coworkers differently now. You know, even if it's not, there's no embarrassing moments with the cat walking by or something, even if it's just you're in your room, 
do you view your coworker differently now based on what you see behind them? Um, have they elevated themselves in your mind or maybe lowered themselves a bit? Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that it's, it's definitely constrained and created uh, both opportunities and, and obstacles uh, to gain status. But I don't know. I don't know about you, man, but I've been posting more on social media and like trying to like, I don't know, make, have, have more of these kinds of conversations and so on. And I don't know, it's, it hasn't been a, a terrible year for me. No, not for me either. I was yeah. saying the other day, over the last year or 18 months or so, I've developed and you're you're one of them buddies who i can ring without organizing like i don't book it in on the calendar i just ring and see if they're free and if they are i have a conversation for like two hours and then put the phone down like we did this maybe about a month ago or so just rang ended up chewing each other's ears off i'm I'm reading to you from books you're like <laughs> off on a walk and cooking or on the phone for ages so there's certain elements i think that have really helped us to connect have you heard about the zoom boom of lockdown face do you know about this i have no idea what that is so there has been a significant increase in cosmetic surgeries from the neck and above and it's because people are looking at themselves on zoom all day and they're realizing that they're particularly unhappy with the way that they look so plastic surgeons are noting a zoom boom that's yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, honestly. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, people are pretty hard on themselves uh, in terms of their appearance. I've I've actually seen some some interesting research on this. You know, people sort of assess their own appearance and other people too. Like, you know, people. I mean, more so, women tend to be harder on their own appearance than than you know, more objective, unbiased observers. Um, so that makes sense if you're sort of looking at your own image and you're sort of hard on yourself that you would you would feel that. Um, and yeah, I mean, this this brings to mind some some interesting research about like self perceptions. Uh, I mean, oftentimes we only look at each other, you know, our, ourselves rather uh, in the mirror in the morning or something, maybe in the bathroom walking past. But now we're looking at each, you know our own face all day long. Um, <laughs> and and the research uh, you know, sort of shows like how do people view themselves? And they've basically taken people's pictures uh, and either sort of show them the real picture or a picture they sort of modified to be, I think, 20% more attractive. And I can't remember exactly how they did this, but basically a more attractive version of the same face. And if you ask people, you know, we, we took a photo of you, one of these is the actual photo, which one is it? People overwhelmingly choose the 20% more attractive face. Um, and now I guess we can't really fool ourselves in that way because you're looking at the real face, not the 20% more sort of psychological image we carry around with ourselves all day. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that research is, yeah. I mean, in in Von Hippel's book, he actually talks about this, about how, you know, we don't like candid photos of ourselves, uh, not because our friends are bad photographers, but because that's what we actually look like. Uh, we tend to look at, you know, the images of ourselves we see the most are like that professional portrait photo, the one with the lighting just right and the filters and this and that. And we see that, and that's how we think of ourselves. Uh, but actually, the candid photo is who you really are. And now we're seeing that candid photo. Yeah, that's yeah. I didn't think about that, man. Yeah. That's that's rough. The photo yeah. from the side where the hairline's wonky, and you can see that you actually missed a little bit when you were shaving earlier on today. And right. yeah, man, it's a. Uh... Wonder if confidence levels have declined since uh, since all this. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. 
one of the most fun uh, mental model effects that I learned last year was how you can get laid more easily by going out with a guy who looks similar but slightly more ugly than you. So you're basically utilizing the anchoring bias. But the problem is, if me okay. and you go, if me and you go out together, no one's confusing me for you. It's different ethnicity, okay. different sort of look. What you need to find is a slightly more ugly, shorter, fatter Asian. Or I need to go out and find a guy who looks a little bit like me, but like you know, a bit more of a wonky nose and you know, a bit of a slump. Maybe he's got, maybe he's a bit slumpy, and uh, that because what people see is they anchor you against someone that looks similar to you. But when you're anchoring two completely, I can't compare an iPhone to the price of a jet, but I can compare an iPhone to the price of a Samsung. And um, right, yeah, that that anchoring effect was was something that I read about last year, which was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when I hear that, I think about like um, sort of positional status, like you know, in economics, they call positional goods. You know, social status is is uh, it's not absolute, right? It's relative. It's not. You know, you're not ranked on some objective scale with the entire world. You're mostly ranked with the people who are just around you. Um, you know, I know economists have done research, you know, simple versions of this where like they ask people, would you rather make uh, $60,000 a year, but everyone at your firm of the same rank makes 50 versus, you know, making 80, but everyone else around you makes 90. People choose the first option. They're making absolutely less, but, you know, they're higher than everyone around them. Uh, I once, uh, you know, just along this sort of uh, relative status line, I heard this, uh, this is a, I think this is a Jewish folklore story. There's a man who's walking along the beach and he sees a lamp, he rubs it, and then there's a genie and he says to him, you know, I will grant you whatever wish you want, but I will give your neighbor uh, twice as much as whatever I give you. And the man th- stops and he thinks and he asks the genie, I want you to pluck one of my eyes out. And so the idea here is that people will actually incur damage to themselves, the costs, if it will bring the closest person to them sort of on that same level, a little, you know, lower than themselves. Um, I, I heard there was a, an Irish variation of this where the guy asks the genie, he, he says, uh, you know, I want you to beat me half to death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think this sort of captures that, that intuition of like, you know, it's not, it's not um, something that, you know, we're not ranked on this, this scale that we can very, very neatly say that like, oh, more of this is always good. Sometimes more of something isn't always good if everyone around you is getting even more of that thing, right? If I offer you, you know, 10 IQ points, that might sound great. But if I'm going to give everyone else 20, now you're actually you know, absolutely smart, but relatively a little dumber. And that's, that's, that's hard, right? Man. We were gonna do we were gonna do another one, but we're just gonna to have to do it in future. This has been far too fun. Uh, people want to check out your awesome newsletter or your fantastic Twitter. Where should they go? Uh, yeah, the website is just robkhenderson.com, letter K, uh, and then Twitter same robkhenderson. The most underrated follow on Twitter in 2021 i said it to you the other day man uh, i really really appreciate you coming on we've got so much to go through we've got all stuff to do with cultural evolution and coalitional instinct we're going to do another episode soon but we'll leave this one here thank you so much for coming on man yeah thank you chris